0: Okay, please turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2 and then, uh, sort of in a, an amazing feat of fingers, also turn to Acts 4. It's because this morning we're going to be looking at two passages, two related passages, Acts, basically the end of Acts 2 and the end of Acts chapter 4. And the title I've given to this morning's message is The Devoted Life. The Devoted Life. A few weeks ago, back in Acts 2 we looked at what it is that makes a person a Christian. We saw that a genuine, authentic Christian is one who, first of all, hears the message of the gospel, the message that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, that he has made him both saviour and king through his sin-bearing death and his life-giving resurrection. And on hearing that message, a Christian is someone who has responded by repenting of their sin and putting their trust in Jesus and what he's done. And as a result, in Acts 2, a double promise is made to every Christian, that the moment they first believe, all of their sins are forgiven, and at the same time, God's Spirit comes and makes his home within them. And since then, we've explored Acts 3, we've explored most of Acts 4, but the reason we're returning again to Acts 2 today is to answer a further question. What happens next? What happens when someone becomes a Christian? How does a new Christian respond? How should they respond to being saved? What new way of life does the Holy Spirit produce as a result of such a great salvation? The answer that's so clearly demonstrated in both of our passages this morning is that he brings forth in them a new life of devotion. Chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves. This is, in, in many ways, the key verse this morning, chapter 2, 42. They devoted themselves. Not just some of them, but all of them. All 3,000 new Christians, they devoted themselves. Every single new believer entered into a life of devotion. So... Let's read on. We're going to read the end of Acts 2 for now. Let's discover what it was precisely that they devoted themselves to, beginning at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, The Jones family, we'll call them the Jones family because I didn't think there were any Jones families in the church that were safe. The Jones family had been waiting for Sunday to come around all week. Through much of the mundaneness of the previous six days, the promise of Sunday's gathering had been what had kept them going, full of excitement and anticipation. When, during the week, conversations around the dinner table had turned to the weariness of daily tasks, They would remind each other of the refreshment and the joy that awaited them on Sunday. They'd gone to bed early on Saturday night in order to be fresh and ready in the morning, special clothes laid out and ironed, food prepared for sharing with friends later on. To the outside observer looking in, they were sacrificing time and energy and money to be a part of this, but such was their devotion that it really didn't feel like a sacrifice at all. This was their passion, their delight and their joy. This was the pinnacle of their week, the event above all others that in many ways they lived for. And so with happy and eager faces on Sunday morning, they leapt into the car together, talking excitedly about what they were going to enjoy together, singing the songs they knew they would be singing with others when they got there. This is what life is all about, they thought. This is what makes life worth living. This is what we've been waiting for. What better way to spend a Sunday than going down to the stadium to watch another game? The Christian life is a devoted life. But lots of people devote their lives to all sorts of things. They might devote themselves to football, food, to drink, to clothing, to success, to sex, to careers, to acquiring property, devote themselves to excitement and thrills and pleasure and fame or academia. Devotion alone is not a virtue. What matters is what we devote ourselves to. A person can live their entire life, sadly, busily, devoted to the wrong things. Many of us, even as Christians, try to devote our lives to too many different things. And we often feel ragged and burnt out in the process as we try to keep up with all of those things. What really matters is what we're devoted to. So what should we be devoted to above all things? What does a life of devotion for the Christian look like at its core? While our two passages this morning, they certainly don't tell us everything about this devoted life of a Christian, they do very clearly highlight three things that every Christian is called above all else to consistently, passionately, eagerly, and wholeheartedly devote themselves to. Here we see in Acts 2, these first 3,000 Christians, along with the many thousands that would follow, together devoted to these three things. Firstly, to learning. Secondly, to worshipping. And thirdly, to sharing their lives in fellowship together. Devoted to learning, worshipping and fellowshipping together. Those, those are our three headings. Those are the three things we find in this passage this morning. But just before we dive into, into them, it's important to realize as well that there, there is great heart and vigor in this word devoted. This, this word devoted is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling on the inside. It's not just a gentle and mild inclination to do a little of something from time to time. No, this word devoted, it captures the idea of a heartfelt, dogged perseverance, to be insatiably, intently engaged in something and attend constantly to it. That's why some versions, some of the older versions of the Bible, translate it as they continued steadfastly in these things. These very first spirit-filled Christians devoted themselves and continued steadfastly in this brand new way of life, a life Utterly devoted to learning and worshiping and fellowshipping together. And so should we too, if we're Christians here this morning. First of all, then, they devoted themselves to learning. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I think it's surely not by accident that Luke begins his list here. Each one of these new believers had been saved through the apostles' truth filled teaching. And so what they immediately devote themselves to is hearing more of the apostles teaching. They they want more. We want to hear more about this incredible good news that has just saved us. And this I think is so worth noting that this newly spirit-filled congregation right there beginning on the day of Pentecost, they've just witnessed with their own eyes the dramatic events that took place that day. They didn't first and foremost go seeking after experience. They didn't abandon the study of the Word because the Spirit was now at work in them. No, walking in the fullness of the Spirit, they were seeking eagerly after more of the apostles' teaching. This is where the Spirit fundamentally leads them. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to the Word of God. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to the Word of God. John Stott writes... One might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed and there were 3,000 pupils. We note that those new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience which led them to despise their mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. So here are these 3,000 new Christians, they're all walking in the Spirit, and each one of them is drawn first and foremost to the Bible, to God's Word, to the apostles' teaching, to hear more of what they've just begun to hear. 1 Peter 2 verse 2 says, "...like newborn infants longing for the pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation." Where the Spirit reigns in believers' hearts, a love for his word is born and reigns too. And this isn't a temporary thing either. Uh, for the first Christians, this was the beginning of a lifelong journey. A lifelong journey of learning. Literally translated, this verse says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So this wasn't just a, a class for new Christians. It wasn't kind of a, a 10-week discipleship course. Uh, maybe you, know, you do it after Christianity Explored, we'll get there 10 more weeks under our belts and learn a bit more. No, unlike those of us perhaps this morning who are still in school or university and we are very much eagerly looking forward to graduating and no longer studying one day, these Christians weren't looking forward to that. They weren't looking to graduate and no longer learn, nor were they looking for the topic of learning to move on from being about Jesus. They were gladly devoting themselves to a lifetime of plumbing ever deeper into the riches of the gospel of Jesus. Christian maturity, as every New Testament letter demonstrates, doesn't come from moving on from the gospel. But instead from moving down ever deeper into the gospel. Deeper into the vast spiritual riches that are stored up there for us in Christ. There's a lifelong supply of treasures in Jesus just waiting for us to unearth and unwrap and behold with awe and wonder each and every day of our lives. And yet saying that, I know how easily we can lose sight of that. How easily we can lose our appetite for him. Perhaps especially if we've been a Christian for some time. I know how easy that is for me. Dry spells of waning interest are not unusual in the Christian's life. Over time, perhaps, perhaps through a lack of feasting, we can lose our hunger. And maybe through a lack of drinking, we can lose our thirst. Like the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, we can lose our first love for Jesus. It's an awful place to be, but it happens at various times to all of us. We forget what we first So keenly new. We forget that there are immense spiritual riches waiting for us to be unearthed in God's Word and all that it says about Jesus. That there are jewels of truth that we have perhaps now largely forgotten. Truths we need to see again, like we did the first time. Truths that, when they were first revealed to us in our Christian life years ago, they literally made our hearts sing. Friends, those truths, they are still in the Word. They are still there as much as they've always been. Not one of them has gone missing. And those truths, they are still as mighty and as powerful and as beautiful as they were in our younger days as a Christian. Still as powerful as dynamite to blow away all the cobwebs of apathy and dullness and nostalgia if we'll only devote ourselves again steadfastly to seeking them. In the hands of the Spirit of God. The Word of God is mighty to revive us. And instill in us an even richer joy and an even more passionate devotion than perhaps we've known before. Excuse me. The question is... Are we as eager as those first Christians were to let the Spirit continue doing his work? Are we as eager enough to even cry out to him, asking him to relight the fires of devotion in our hearts that have gone out? Are we prepared to dedicate ourselves here and now again this morning to feeding on God's word at every opportunity and to begin again pursuing a lifetime of learning from the apostles' teaching? The Christian life is a devoted life. And central to that life and central to its soul-satisfying beauty is a devotion to learning continually from the apostles' teaching. That's, that's the first thing the Holy Spirit stirred up these 3,000 Christians to. And it is still the Spirit's mighty passion to stir up this desire and devotion in every Christian here today, including you. And including me, that's the Spirit's passion. And that's the first thing we see here. Secondly, we see these early Christians become devoted to worshipping. They become devoted to worshipping. Verse 42 again, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. So next of all here, we see them giving themselves regularly to prayer and to praise and to sharing the Lord's Supper. Each one of these being a key ingredient in their devotion to worship. And I think there's three things to take notice of in particular in, in their practice of these. Firstly, it's good to notice who they were worshipping with. Secondly, notice the attitude of heart that they worshipped in. And thirdly, what their worship was a response to. So just briefly through each of those, who they worshipped with. These are not lone Christians practising these things by themselves. Now I think no doubt they were also doing these things in private. They were praying in private. Singing as they went about their daily business, uh, just as likely as they were meditating on the apostles' teaching in their own time as well. But what marks them out, especially here as New Testament Christians, is they're making it a priority to do these things together with other Christians, both formally and informally, Luke tells us. So, in sort of big meetings in the temple uh, and then in each other's homes more casually as well. They're doing these things together. They're devoted to times of corporate worship, to worshipping together. What that teaches us is it's not enough to only ever pray by ourselves. We must devote ourselves to praying together. It's not enough to only ever sing and praise God by ourselves. We must give thanks and praise God together. And of course, we can't devote ourselves to the breaking of bread by ourselves at all. We must share the Lord's Supper together. God calls us to make worshipping together, just as much as learning together, an immovable priority in our lives and on our calendars. That's not only described here, but it's also prescribed and commanded all throughout the New Testament. We would be wise then, perhaps, to... Look at our calendar for the coming month. If you get a chance this afternoon this week, look at your calendar for the coming month or maybe take out your calendar for the last few months and let's ask ourselves, is worship, corporate worship, praying together, singing together, breaking bread together, especially Sunday mornings together, is it an immovable priority in our lives? Is it something I prize and protect? Or is it something I too easily push aside so it doesn't get in the way of other things. That's the first thing to notice here. The second thing to notice, as I said, is their attitude of heart in which they worshipped. And I couldn't better what John Stott says here, so let me read from him again. He says, "It was Their attitude of heart was both joyful and reverent. There can be no doubt of their joy, for they are described as having glad and sincere hearts, which literally means in exaltation and sincerity of heart. With unaffected joy. Since God had sent His Son into the world and had now sent them His Spirit, they had plenty of reason to be joyful. At the same time, their joy was never irreverent. If joy in God is an authentic work of the Spirit, so is the fear of God. Everyone was filled with awe, verse 43 which seems to include the Christians as well as the non-Christians. God had visited their city, he was in their midst, and they knew it. They bowed down before him in humility and wonder. It is a mistake, therefore, to imagine that in public worship, reverence and rejoicing are mutually exclusive. The combination of joy and awe is a healthy balance in worship. Or as Matthew Henry puts it much more succinctly, the Lord enlarged their hearts with holy joy. With holy joy. So let's keep praying both for a spirit of awe and of gladness to be upon us each time we gather. Certainly that's something we pray for often in our prayer meetings before the Sunday service. And God in his kindness has been been so faithful to answer our prayers in that little room out there to renew a heart of praise in his church as we come to worship each week in here. God is good and faithful to answer that prayer for awestruck, joyful worship. And thirdly, we see here what their worship was in response to. Notice what their worship was in response to. You see, it wasn't that these different elements of Christian worship were chosen at random. Okay, so don't imagine, let's not imagine it was that someone at some point thought, okay, we've got some teaching going on. Uh, but we can't just have that. Maybe you know, it's a bit, bit dry on its own. What can we add? What can we add to our time together? Wouldn't it be nice if we also ate together? And then so, someone else puts up their hand and like, well, maybe we could pray together. And then another suggestion, maybe we could sing together as well. You know, they do that at the football or whatever the first century equivalent of the football was. No, every aspect of their worship was a response to what they were hearing, a response to the apostles' teaching. It was a response to the gospel. It was a response to what God in Christ had done for them. So the Lord's Supper was this tangible, touchable, tasteable reminder of Christ's sacrifice. The apostles were preaching to their ears, and the Lord's table was preaching Christ to their eyes and their hands and their taste buds. They prayed because they had new gospel assurance. They had a bold new confidence to draw near to God through Jesus and bring their request to him. And they gave themselves to heartfelt praise. They sung their hearts out because they wanted to express their awe and wonder and delight in all that they had received and heard and learned about the Saviour. There is a false dichotomy at large in certain churches, in certain parts of the Christian world, where teaching and worship are pitted against each other as rivals to one another. And there's this false dichotomy that suggests that a Christian will, must fall into one of two camps. That you'll either be more of a learning-oriented Christian who thinks what matters most is a devotion to reading and study and listening to good teaching and preaching, and so you'll go find a group of people that you can do that with. Or you'll be a more experience-focused Christian who believes that what matters most is devotion to times of worshipping, to wholehearted, limbs-engaged times of praise, uh, preferably with loud drums and clapping and shouts and singing, and and therefore you go looking for that kind of people and that kind of church. But I hope we know. I I know we know. That's a false dichotomy, isn't it? It's a terrible dichotomy. Trying to divorce learning from worshipping, head from heart and body, word from spirit, it's a dichotomy that's unbiblical and unchristian because here in the early church, we see a devotion to learning and a devotion to worshipping, they are inseparably tied together. Their learning fed their worship. Their devotion to learning poured fresh fuel on their devotion to worshipping. And their worship in turn stirred up their hunger for more learning. They, you know, they, they sung with joy the praises of God, and then they said, we, we want more fuel for this. We want to hear more. Stoke our joy again as we look upon Christ once again. All of us then would do well to ask ourselves Do I have a bent more towards one of these than the other? And, and maybe. Many of us have a bent a little bit one way or another, but do I have a bent? Am I equally devoted to learning and worshipping? And is the one adequately feeding the other? Could it be, in fact, that I'm not feeling the benefit of one of these, the one that I more naturally enjoy, precisely because I'm neglecting the vital role of the other? So uh, let me just put that into simple words, uh, illustrate it. Say you much prefer times of worship to times of teaching. And so you pay little attention anymore to what's preached and taught. Well, unfortunately, over time, the the practice of worshipping together will increasingly bring reduced benefits as well. Those times of worship that you once loved with a passion, they will bring diminished returns. It's like a farmer going out to enjoy fresh produce from his fields each week when he hasn't watered or sown any new seed for months or years. Or say instead that you much prefer times of teaching, so much so that oftentimes you don't join in when when the other believers around you are praying and singing. Perhaps you mime or you take a loo break or you you do stay, but you feel very uh, embarrassed or uncomfortable or just disinterested. Well, unfortunately, such a one-sided devotion to learning will leave your heart increasingly cold and dulled and hardened. Even those truths that that used to wow you and leave you awestruck and strike you as deeply profound, they will increasingly lose their hold on you if you won't respond to them in heartfelt worship, in holy joy and wonder, along with God's people. We see God's will for for His people here so clearly. From the day of Pentecost to the day of Christ's return, a devotion to learning and a devotion to worshipping, they must be inseparably tied together in our lives and in our life together as a church. And then with both of those things, we must have a third passion as well. Thirdly and finally this morning, this New Testament church, they also devoted themselves to fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. Now, I, um, to be quite honest, I did wrestle a little bit this week with whether this third point... And, and you probably think, why, why worry so much about these things? This is just what happens. I wrestled with whether to call it devoted to loving or devoted to caring or devoted to sharing. And I think all of those would have done well to summarise the idea of what's going on. But I've, I've gone with fellowship... Because that's the word Luke actually uses in verse 42. And it captures all of those other things. It captures loving and caring and sharing. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And the, the Greek word for fellowship here, it speaks of sharing something in common with other people. Not just having something in common, like, oh, look, you know, we've both got blue eyes or we've both got brown hair. No, this actually sharing something in common in terms of sharing out and giving out what they had to each other for the common good. So picture then that you've got these 3,000 new believers. Um, They're all kind of wet behind the ears and still working out what's going on. Many of them started out the day or the week as strangers to one another. Now they're united in the closest possible way through Jesus. They're, They're no longer strangers but family And almost immediately they begin to devote themselves to sharing all that they can with each other. They become a fellowship. And their fellowship takes place on two levels, in two important ways. They begin to share relationally and they also share materially. So first of all, they share relationally. Their fellowship, first of all, is deeply relational. They begin meeting together regularly formally and informally and they aren't just gathering to talk about the sport or the weather or a common interest or hobby they come together to share in the spiritual realities that are now theirs as christians they're listening and learning and talking and encouraging one another in the things of god they all know him now that's the great privilege isn't it of the of the new covenant The Spirit now dwelling in every Christian, they all know him. They're all encountering the Lord. They're all listening to the scriptures and the apostles teaching and they're all enjoying communion with God. And then when they're together, they're talking about the things of God that he has been teaching them, that they have been learning and enjoying. Fellowship, as it says in, I think, my favorite book about small groups, is sharing something in common on the deepest possible level of human relationship And that is our experience of God himself. Fellowship is, J.I. Packer writes, a sharing with our fellow believers the things that God has made known to us about himself in hope that we may thus help them to know him better and so enrich their fellowship with him. And it is a seeking to receive what God has made known of himself to others as a means to finding strength refreshment and instruction for one's own soul so it's a sharing a giving and a receiving and the kind of fellowship they devoted themselves to was first of all this deeply relational god-centered fellowship sharing and talking with one another about the things of god and secondly they also shared materially with one another they shared materially. Uh, verse 44 All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then at the end of Acts 4, which we haven't looked at yet, so please just turn over there, we're given an even bigger window into this aspect of, of their sharing their material goods, their money, their, their, their possessions with each other. Acts 4 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I think it's a beautiful description of their unity together. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Now, just to be clear, it wasn't that they all immediately sold everything they owned. This wasn't, as some maybe have tried to suggest over the years, a sort of an early form of communism. Not at all. These these early believers, they still had personal possessions. They still met in homes for many years to come. So people still owned homes in which they were hospitable through and welcomed the church into. There was also no obligation to sell property and to give away their money. Peter was really clear about that, and we're going to see this next week. When Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira, and God's judgment falls on them, it's not because they were unwilling to give a certain amount. It was simply that they lied about what they were giving, and they wanted to look more generous than they actually were. Now, what we see here in Acts 2 and 4 is a big-hearted... Entirely voluntary generosity with money and possessions. And it's, it's a generosity that's fueled not by obligation, but by love for one another. So that no brother or sister in their midst would be left in need. And this is one reason that we as a church have a benevolence fund. that I know many people here give into regularly as a way of allowing us as a church, it's one way of living out Acts 4.35, of distributing from those funds wherever we see a church member who is in need. But I know too that many of you have, have so often generously given directly to others in the church wherever and whenever you, you, you sniff the merest hint of a need. You're quick to give. And at times I'm sure that's meant you sacrificing in order to meet people's needs. I, I have never known a more generous people than the people in this church family So why did so many people in the early church and why do so many here today have such an eagerness to meet the material needs of others in the body? Certainly it wasn't to impress God. It wasn't somehow to buy his favor. Instead it was because they couldn't get over how radically generous God had already been to them in Christ. God's saving love had changed them and they wanted to love each other because God had first loved them. They wanted to be generous like their Heavenly Father. They wanted to do good to those in need. And, and, and that kind of rich generosity and loving mercy ministry amongst God's people, it was a profoundly powerful witness to the truth and the power of the gospel. Not long after Acts was written, a man named Aristides commented on the reasons for the fast spread of Christianity. Because really, uh, so many people, especially those in power and high up uh, in the world, they couldn't understand how this church, how this message of Christianity had spread so fast. And, and, and this man wrote the following to Emperor Hadrian. I think this was in AD 125. He said of the Christians, They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness, Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah... All of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. By your love for one another, Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples. And that promise has proven true over and over and over again throughout the history of the church. The early church's devotion to this kind of loving fellowship was a powerful witness to all who encountered them, as was their devotion to the apostles' teaching and their devotion to worshipping together. Here's the challenge, though. All of these things we've been talking about this morning and seeing in Acts 2 and 4, all these things are costly The devoted life is a costly life. It's costly in time and costly in comfort, in energy, in privacy, in financial security. The cost of devotion to Jesus is great. And yet, it is infinitely worth it. Because the fruit of Christian devotion in our lives is is incomparably rich and beautiful. It it promises a reward far greater than anything else in all the world that we might choose to devote our lives to. Nothing compares to a life devoted to Jesus. Just listen and look again at the fruit of the early church's devotion. Chapter 2, 43, and awe came upon every soul. Chapter 4, verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. Chapter 247 And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Christians together, living out this devoted life, increasingly become a joyful, humble, grateful, awestruck, loving, and generous people. And all of that attracts people to Jesus. It is contagious. It is is irresistible in the hands of the Spirit. And so it bears eternal fruit, not just in our lives, but in the lives of many other people as well. It will bear eternal fruit in the lives of many people this morning who don't yet know Christ or have the hope of the gospel. It is worth living for. This Christian life, this devoted life, it's the best kind of life that any of us could ever live. There there is no one, no one ever, ever lay on their deathbed looked back and lamented the fact that they were too devoted to Jesus never lamented that they had devoted too much time to learning about him and worshipping him and sharing all they had with other people there's no regrets for living this kind of life none and so with that being true let me end with a question what is your life truly devoted to what is it devoted to right now in practice? How many things are you trying to devote your life to? Is your life and my life, are they devoted first and foremost to the things God himself has called us to do? Are you devoted above all other, other noble and good things that there might be to do? Are you devoted... First and foremost to giving your time and your money and your heart to being a part of God's community, his learning, worshipping, fellowshiping community devoted to playing your part in his church. There is, there is limitless grace for us this morning when we realise we've fallen short. Studying these passages this week, I've just been struck over and over again by how my devotion falls short. And uh, hearing a message like this doesn't suddenly sort it all out. I've been thinking on these things all week and and each day I'm realising my devotion is still falling so far short. There is grace and there is mercy and there is a Saviour who loves us and rescues us in spite of all our sins and in spite of all of the devotion that we lack. And yet gloriously there's also a Holy Spirit within us whose eager passion it is to help us live a life of ever-increasing devotion to Jesus. Just as the Son of God is mighty to save us, so the Spirit of God is mighty to change us and to increasingly produce in us the great fruits of a devoted life. Let's pray. Let's ask that the Lord would help us do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us from a life of devotion to sin, and Lord, you have raised us up into a new life of freedom and joy and devotion to your Son. Oh Lord, please forgive us for our frequently half-hearted devotion to him. We thank you, Jesus, that in your life-giving death, we find grace that is greater than all our sin, grace that lasts and walks with us all throughout our days on this earth. Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would help us to live a life of ever-increasing devotion to our King. Spirit, please help us, especially to pursue this devoted life together as one people, one body, a church family, learning and worshipping and sharing with one another in a way that magnifies and glorifies and draws attention to our great Savior and King. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his fame. Amen.